want you to stand with me. Pastor Bruce's message is on the authority of Scripture. Scripture is God speaking to us. And so if you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26. And if you're with us and uh, you don't have a Bible, you can take the Pew Bible and page 627. And we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So as I read this, join your hearts with me, follow along, and let's prepare to really learn what Scripture is, the place it has in our lives, and how it can transform our lives. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And this is what he said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that that field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two people, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. Father, interwoven through all of this is that your word is spoken and will be fulfilled. Lord, your word is powerful and it will be accomplished, but we have a role to play in that. So I pray that we would have prepared hearts, that whatever our circumstances are, whatever our burdens are, that we would be prepared this morning to hear from you about the power, the authority, and the life-changing ability of your word. So bless our pastor as he speaks. Lord, may we hear what your truth is through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, let me just say as we begin here that I am really, really excited that you're here because I am super excited about uh, speaking on this particular passage that Chris just read for us in Acts. Uh, you know, I'm always excited when I get the opportunity to stand before a group of people such as yourself, especially here on a Sunday morning and preach and open up God's Word and uh, try to explain it and especially apply it. But this is one passage of Scripture that I am really, really excited about. It's a, we're going to be looking at what I think is one of the more fascinating accounts of the early church, of the church as they begin, as they kind of uh, are birthed out, as we will see in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. And so this account that Chris just read is super, super fascinating. I mean, when you read it here, at first glance, it appears everything that we read here in the second half of Acts 1 revolves around the story of Judas and his replacement as an apostle. Uh, when you just look on the surface, you're like, whoa, what is going on here? This story about Judas, and now they're replacing him. And, and after all, who's not fascinated by the story of Judas? I mean, his betrayal and then his subsequent suicide, and, and just how Luke describes it is pretty fascinating. I mean, look at it again, the way he describes it in verse 18, and falling headlong, he, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. I mean, that's like what you see on a TV show, The Walking Dead or something, or, you know, or, I mean, that's just, I don't know, it's fascinating. And then I personally find it fascinating to read how they replaced Judas with another apostle. Luke writes it in verse 26, and they cast their lots. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. So is this teaching us now how to choose a, uh, a new pastor? Is this teaching us how to choose a, a new, new person, new member on the leadership council or the finance team? Is this even perhaps teaching us how to choose a new girlfriend? Is it okay to cast lots or roll the dice when it comes to making decisions? Well, let me just say from the beginning here, I wouldn't suggest that as a wise method for choosing a spouse. And I certainly don't think that's what Luke is teaching us here. Remember, some things in Acts are simply descriptive. They're not necessarily prescriptive. So what then? What is Luke teaching us here? What does the writer of Acts, Luke, what does he want us to know here? Why is he telling us about the story of Judas? Well, to answer that question, we need to step back, and we need to kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on. And we need to ask another question, and that is, why is the story of Judas and his replacement in the book of Acts to begin with? Why does Luke stick it right here? At the end here of Acts 1, right before the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. Listen, it's not by accident. There's a purpose to this. That God intentionally wants to communicate to us just as he wanted these disciples to know something as well. You see, it's easy for us here to kind of get caught up in the, in the fascination of Judas' suicide and even to get lost in the details of his replacement. But Luke wants us to see something foundational in these 120 disciples as they are going to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke is showing us 
In other words, the foundation, the undergirding of the early church as they become unstoppable in continuing the mission that Jesus began. It's sometimes asked why the church, the early church here in Acts, why it grew so explosively so quickly. I mean, what started as 120 people here in Acts 1 grew to 3,000 in Acts 2 and to over 5,000 men alone in Acts chapter 4. New churches sprang up all across Judea and eventually spread into the region of Samaria and eventually across the Roman Empire by the end of Acts. So how do we account for such amazing growth in those early days? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is God wanted the church to grow. And so it grew. And it grew because His power was unleashed on this church on this body of people, these 120. But if we examine the early church closely, especially here in Acts 1, in its, in its foundational days, another factor stands out. A factor that's very critical to the life of the early church here. The early church grew because it had a strong conviction in the absolute authority of God's Word. Now, this is not only foundational in the life of the early church, but folks, listen to me. This is critical in the life of our church even today. If we're going to be a church on mission, if we're going to be an unstoppable force for God, I would put forth to you, based on this passage of Scripture, that we, we as a church, we as individuals, we must be committed to the absolute authority of Scripture. These 120 Christ followers believed what God said. And they made His Word the basis for everything they did. And because they believed God's Word, they were committed to the absolute authority of God's Word. And nowhere is this more apparent than in Peter's speech to these 120 disciples as they gathered in the upper room here in Acts chapter 1. No doubt they had probably, as you can imagine, we would be doing the same thing. They were probably talking about Judas, how he defected, how he betrayed Christ, which led to his betrayal, how, how he committed suicide by hanging himself, and, and they're shocked by it, they have questions by it, they're talking about it. I mean, should they now pick another person? Should they replace him, or, or should they just leave his position unfulfilled and go on as 11 apostles? And remember, Jesus, he's already ascended up to heaven, and, this, and they're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So, so how would they know what to do? Jesus is not there to tell them. The Spirit hasn't come yet to guide them. So what are they going to do? And so I can imagine after some discussion, we know this is true because Luke tells us Peter stands and he begins his speech. And now, on a side note here, I do find it rather interesting. In fact, it's amazing because I personally can relate to this. I'm sure some of you out there can relate to this. That Notice who's doing the standing and speaking. Who is it? It's Peter. Luke tells us that Peter stands and he speaks. Peter, is that the same guy who who a few weeks earlier denied Jesus Christ three times? Is this the same man who kept putting his foot in his mouth, 
who wanted to be the leader, and yet Jesus was constantly kind of holding back? Is this the same one? Yes, it's the same Peter, which tells me that Peter is restored now. God is using Peter in the birth and in the formation here of the early church, which means if you have fallen before, it doesn't have to hold you back. Your past can be restored and forgiven, and God can still use you just like he did Peter even now. And notice what Peter says. He stands and he says to this group of 120 disciples in verse 16, notice that he says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. But what scripture had to be fulfilled? What specific scripture had to be fulfilled? What is Peter alluding to here? And Peter tells us later on when he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 down in Acts here of verse 20. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Now, don't miss the significance of this. Everything Peter says in his speech to these 120, and everything these 120 disciples do at this moment in this chapter is here in this text is based on these two statements. This scripture had to be fulfilled in for it is written. The first statement speaks to God's sovereignty, and it teaches us that everything happens as part of God's ordained purpose. And the second statement teaches us that the word of God is a written revelation from God. What scripture says? God says. This is the position of historic Christianity, and folks, it is the position of our church here at Glenwood. This reveals Peter's conviction about the authority of Scripture. He believed God's Word is true and that God's Word speaks to this particular situation in which they were facing. Peter believed that hundreds of years earlier, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that David prophesied in the Psalms about the very betrayal of Judas. Peter also believed that by studying Scripture, and at that time, All they had was the Old Testament, but by studying the Old Testament, that they could find out what God had to say about their particular situation of whether or not to replace Judas with another apostle. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows me away. you got to kind of stand back from that, because that is a high, high, high view of Scripture. That's a high view of God's Word. In a day and age when many churches and Christians are compromising the authority of God's Word, folks, listen to me. We as a church, we as individuals, as Christ followers, we must stay committed to the absolute authority of God's Word. Now let me show you how this plays out specifically by two things that are taking place here in this text. Number one, you find that the suicide of the betrayer of Jesus fulfilled Scripture. The suicide of Judas fulfilled Scripture. This is what Peter means when he says this Scripture had to be fulfilled. And the question becomes what Scripture had to be fulfilled. Well, the Scripture that David wrote 
in Psalm 69, and now Peter quotes here in verse 20, when he says, let his, referring to Judas, let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it. Now, this scripture, that scripture, has already been fulfilled, Peter is saying. And it is described for us here now by Luke in verses 18 through 19. And so Luke interjects this in the middle of Peter's speech. That's why you have parentheses, some maybe have it in your Bibles. Notice it, look at it, what it says in verse 18 and 19. Luke describes it here. He says, now this man purchased a field with the wages of his iniquity. He's talking about Judas. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails, or his intestines, gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akaladama, that is, field of blood. Now, why? Why is Luke giving us such a gruesome description of Judah's suicide? I mean, he, he does describe it pretty gruesomely. I mean, he goes into details here. Well, I think one reason why is Luke is emphasizing, he's highlighting the historicity of it. In other words, Luke is telling us that this event actually happened. And it fulfilled scripture that was prophesied long ago by David. We know from Matthew's account in his gospel that Judas himself did not buy the field with his betrayal money. Rather, Judas... He threw it down at the feet of the Jewish leaders in remorse for what he had done. And they then used it to buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Meanwhile, Judas went out and he hanged himself. Perhaps at this very field that Luke is now describing for us. and It became known as the field of blood. So why does Matthew report that Judas hanged himself, but Luke now here states that he fell headlong in all his intestines gushed out. Is that a contradiction in Scripture? No. Both are true. And here's how you explain that. Judas hung himself over an edge of a cliff, and either the rope broke or the limb broke. And he may have already been dead and bloated for some time when the impact of his fall caused his intestines to gush out. Now, the story of Judas' suicide raises several questions, does it not? Several questions, in fact, more questions than we have time here this morning to answer. But there are a few questions that I do want us to look at. In fact, perhaps one question most people ask is this when it comes to Judas. Where is he now? What happened to Judas? Well, look at this in your notes coming up on the screen. Judas is the man who kissed the door of heaven but went to hell. Judas is the man who kissed the door of heaven, but went to hell. In fact, the Bible is very clear on this point, that Judas is in hell today. Notice what Peter says about Judas in Acts 1 here. Drop down to verse 25, and he says, To take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. That phrase there, his own place, is a reference for hell. If that seems a little harsh, 
Listen to the words Jesus uses as he prays in the upper room on the night of his very betrayal in John 17, 12. Jesus says this, it's a prayer. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is in hell today. He has been there for over 2,000 years, and he will be there forever. He has paid the ultimate price for the betraying of the Son of God. Now, some people may ask, well, did Judas lose his salvation? And the answer is no. He didn't lose his salvation because he never had it to begin with. He was not saved and then lost. He was lost because he was never saved in the first place. Others may ask, did Judas go to hell because he committed suicide? That's a good question. But the answer is no. Listen, suicide is a sin just as any murder is a sin. But that is not why Judas went to hell. Judas went to hell because he never truly committed himself to Jesus Christ. His betrayal proved that fact, and his suicide merely sealed that fate. Still other people may ask, well, didn't Judas feel remorse? Didn't he feel sorry for what he did? And according to Matthew 27, verse 3, absolutely yes. Although Judas was gripped with guilt over what he had done, he never asked for forgiveness. And there is a world of difference between remorse and repentance. Listen, many people truly feel sorry over what they do in life. Many people truly feel sorry for their sins, how they hurt people, how they made mistakes, bad mistakes, have regrets over that, and yet they never repent of those sins. They never come to God and ask God to forgive them of their sins and accept that forgiveness through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Listen, I do not doubt that Judas wept bitter tears as he threw the money back into the temple at those Jewish leaders, but his remorse was not true repentance, and it did not lead to the forgiveness of his sins. It led to his suicide. But all of those questions, folks, point us to a more important question, and that is this. Does the spirit of Judas live in you? That's the most important question we can ask when it comes to Judas. Does the spirit of Judas live in you? You see, Judas is a solemn reminder that it is possible to be a friend of Jesus, to associate with other Christ followers, and still not be a true believer in Jesus Christ. Listen to me on this one. Although Judas is dead now, his spirit still lives today. It lives in all those who play the religious games. It lives in all those who go through the Christian motions. It lives in all those who pretend they love Jesus Christ. Listen, the spirit of Judas can be alive in any of us here this morning. Remember, Judas kissed the door of heaven but went to hell. 
He lived with Jesus for three years and still went to hell. He watched Jesus walk on water and still went to hell. He saw Jesus heal the blind, raise the dead, and he still went to hell. Judas ate with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He listened to Jesus day after day, month after month, for three years, and he still went to hell. You say, how is that possible? Because Judas, listen, he was a follower of Jesus, but he was not a true believer in Jesus. He preached the good news about Jesus, but he didn't believe the good news of Jesus for himself. He stood so close to Jesus, but walked so far from him. Luke 22.3 says that Judas was numbered among the twelve disciples. Now that is a very sobering statement when you think about it. Because this morning I wonder how many people are numbered among believers in churches across America here today and still lost in their sins. Listen, Judas... His story here in Luke, it does us a, a great favor if his story causes you to rethink your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you claim to be a Christian here this morning, if you claim to be a Christ follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, let me ask us a few questions here. Are you a true follower, though, or are you just going through the motions? Are you a pretender, or are you a true believer? Have you truly turned from your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Listen, the main lesson from Judas' life is loss unless we at least ask ourselves these questions, unless we struggle through these questions honestly before God. These questions are not meant to cast doubt on your salvation, but rather for you to examine whether you are truly a believer in the first place. And if you're not, then the exhortation is to repent and be saved. Come to Jesus Christ. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus. And ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and receive His gift of eternal life. With that being said, as we lasered in on Jesus, Judas, we need to step back out, if you will. And we need to return to what Peter says here in Acts. When he makes this statement, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And the suicide of Judas fulfilled that scripture. But this leads us left, or still leaves us with some questions. And that is, why is this story of Judas here in Acts 1? Why remind us that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and committed suicide? I mean, what's the purpose of this? Especially as these 120 disciples, as they're gathered in the upper room, are getting ready to go out and be Christ's witnesses and turn the world upside down. What's the purpose here with Luke as he writes this? Well, let me give it to you here. The story of Judas illustrates that God's purposes are unstoppable. 
God's purposes are unstoppable. And the story of Judas is an illustration of that truth. Think about it. Think about this with me. It's easy to believe that God's purposes are sovereign, unstoppable, and even invincible when things go well for God's people. Think about that for your own life. When your life is going well, oh yeah, God is sovereign. God is good. God's purposes are invincible and unstoppable. When things are going well in your life, that is easy to say, easy to believe. But when things go bad, when things don't go as planned, when things don't go as expected, when things don't pan out the way you want them to pan out, especially such as the betrayal of the Son of God and the crucifixion of the Son of God, then listen, when that happens, when things go bad in your life, when suffering comes in, when you get news that there's cancer, when you get news you've lost a job, when you get whatever news it is, when those things happen, you need all the help you can to get to believe that God's purposes are still sovereign and still unstoppable and still invincible. Especially as you continue the mission that Jesus began. And that's what Luke is doing for us here. That's what Luke gives us here in Acts 1. He wants us to know something here. He wants us to know that not even Judas and Satan could stop the sovereign purposes of God and his plan of redemption. That's amazing to me. Is that not amazing to you? Listen, Peter here claims that God knew all about what Judas was going to do in betraying Jesus. He even quotes Scripture to prove it. He says this had to happen because God planned it this way from the very beginning. So how reassuring now to these 120 disciples who are probably wondering, man, did Jesus make a mistake? Can we, can we still trust Jesus? He picked Judas, and yet Judas betrayed him. How can we trust Jesus now as he, he wants us to go out and change the world? Can we truly trust him with this? Did he make a mistake with Judas? After all, he betrayed. And so how reassuring to these 120 disciples to know that God's purposes are invincible, that God's purposes are unstoppable, to know that God is sovereign even over evil events such as the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. Gee, that has application to us even now today, doesn't it? If you're watching your TV news, if you're reading news on the internet, how many are now wondering, is God still sovereign with what's going on with the killing and beheading of Christians by ISIS? Where is God in the middle of all that? Is that part of God's plan? Is that part of his purposes? You see, in many ways, we're still like these 120 disciples in the upper room. And we still have doubts, and we still need confidence in the authority of God's Word to know that we can trust God's Word, to know that God is still sovereign. His purposes are unstoppable. His purposes are invincible. 
So take confidence. Take comfort when you look at the events in your own life personally and when you look at the events across our world because you will never look up into the face of our Father in a time of crisis and danger and see a puzzled and worried look on His face. You will see what you so much want to see and that is the confidence of an invincible and unstoppable purpose of our Heavenly So Peter declares this to the 120. As he now declares it to us, he declares his commitment to the authority of Scripture when he says, folks, this Scripture had to be fulfilled. It was part of God's purposes from the very beginning. And then he explains how the very suicide of the betrayer of Jesus fulfilled that Scripture in Psalm 69. But we also see Peter's commitment to the authority of Scripture again when he quotes another psalm. He quotes Psalm 109 in verse 20 of Acts chapter 1 when he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let another take his office. Whose office? Judas' office. His position as an apostle. He betrayed. He committed suicide. And now David prophesies again. Let another take us off, which brings us to our second point. The selection of the apostle of Jesus fulfilled scripture. You see, the remaining 12 apostles had a dilemma. Should they replace Judas with another apostle? Or should they just leave his position unfulfilled and go on as 11 apostles? Peter believed that by studying Scripture, in this case the Old Testament, that they could actually find out what God had to say about their particular situation of whether or not to replace Judas. Now, again, you've got to get the bigger picture of here because this is mind-boggling. This not only reveals Peter's conviction about the authority of Scripture, but also the relevance of Scripture. He believed that God's word spoke to their particular situation when he quoted Psalm 109, let another take his office. Now, we need to stop right there and just take note of this. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves here for a little bit. How how do we, how do you, how do I, how do we typically respond when faced with a dilemma in our lives? How do we typically respond when we're facing a crisis or a problem? Do we turn to the Scriptures first to see what God has to say about it? Or do we turn to our friends so they can help us sort it through? Or do we just accept what our culture says about this issue, about that situation, about how to respond to that? Well, Peter and these disciples, listen, they saw God's word as relevant to their life and situation. And they devoted themselves to God's word. And they submitted themselves to God's word as their absolute authority. You see, for Peter now, replacing Judas was an issue of obedience because this was something the Scriptures taught. But how should they do this? Well, the method 
adopted for replacing Judas appears as if it was just a roll of the dice. After all, they cast lots to determine who took his place. But look how Luke describes the whole process here in Acts 1. Look at it again. Chris read it for us in verses 21 through 26. Let's see it again. Peter, he's still standing and speaking. He says, therefore, and he's, that therefore is based on this scripture had to be fulfilled. What scripture? The scripture David prophesied in Psalm 109, let another take his office. That scripture had to be fulfilled. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And now Luke tells us what they did. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, it's easy to get lost in the details here. And listen, the point is not the details of how they chose Matthias. Nonetheless, let me briefly take you through it here of the process, the selection process. Number one, we see the qualification of a true apostle is given. Peter basically lists two qualifications for an apostle. One, he must have followed Christ from the very beginning of his ministry, beginning with John the Baptist and his baptism. And he must be a witness of the risen Savior. Those are the two qualifications, which basically means that no one today could be an apostle in the New Testament sense because no one can meet these two qualifications. Second, our faith rests on the eyewitness testimony of men who knew Jesus intimately and publicly declared what they saw and heard. This means Christianity is true because it's based on the true facts of history. And so we see the qualification. Number two, we now see the nomination. The nomination of two men is proposed. Two men meet the qualifications. One is Joseph and the other is Matthias. Now in all likelihood, they were probably the only two men among the group of 120 here who met these two qualifications. It seems that these two men were both excellent choices. Both apparently were well-known, well-respected. They had good testimonies as loyal followers of Christ. And I think it's fair to say that either of them would have made an excellent replacement as an, an apostle. Well, that raises a question. What do you do when both men are good men, but you can only select one? And you're like, what, what difference does that make to my life today? Well, it makes a lot of difference. Let me change the question. We face questions like this all the time. You're thinking about buying a new house, but which one and how much should you pay? You've been offered a good job, but you like your job, and yet you wouldn't mind changing jobs either. So what do you do then? Or you've applied to three colleges, and you've been accepted by two, so which one do you choose? How do you decide? How do you determine God's will? Well, the answer is you do what the disciples did here. You pray and you ask God to help you. Which brings us to number three, the supplication. Their supplication to the Lord is short and to the point. 
And they weren't praying, notice this, they weren't praying to change God's will. They were praying to know God's will. That's an important distinction. Because sometimes we pray in order to convince God to do what we want Him to do in our lives. But this prayer is just the opposite. They basically pray, Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here in this upper room. You know who you want for the job. So just show us who you've already chosen to replace Judas. That was their prayer. Which brings us now to the election of a new apostle. And that's where we come to the lottery here in verse 26. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this involved, this lottery system, if you will, involved writing the names of the two men on pieces of stone or wood or perhaps even parchment paper, placing them in a jar, shaking it up, and either letting one of the stones fall out or somebody without looking, eyes closed, drawn out one of them. And whoever they drew out or whichever one fell out, that's who it was. Now, such a process, you might be surprised to know, was deemed to have the blessing of God upon it. And it was seen as an acceptable means of determining God's will in the Old Testament. Remember, Acts is a transitional book. We are transitioning from the Old Testament, the Old, the New, I mean the Old Covenant ways, and even through the Gospels to the New Church Age. It's transitioning these two, it's bridging it. And so you might be wondering, well, can I use this method to determine God's will in my life? Well, you're welcome to it. Go for it. I wouldn't recommend it for this simple fact. What do we have today that this group of 120 didn't have quite yet? Yeah. We have the Holy Spirit within us, don't we? Dwelling within us as Christ followers. Not only that, we have all of God's word revealed to us. These apostles didn't yet. And so now there's not a need for us to cast lots or roll dice or play rock, paper, scissors and determine who to marry or what job to take. In fact, there is no further record of casting lots in the New Testament, which may or may not be significant. Here's the point. What happened was simple, and it was biblical, and Luke records it as history in the life of the early church. But remember, Acts is a transitional book, and so not everything that happens in the early church is meant to happen in the church today. And yet, and yet, there are valuable principles for us to learn. And there are essential lessons for us to apply as we continue the mission that Jesus began. And the lesson we learn here today from this text in Acts is more than ever, we must remain committed to the absolute authority of God's Word. And we must have Peter's conviction that God's Word is true and that God's Word is relevant and folks, it still speaks to our lives today. God's Word is not archaic. It's not outdated. Peter said, this Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David. Listen, you can't find a clear description of divine inspiration in all the Bible. 
Yes, over 40 different men wrote God's Word. But those words first came from the Holy Spirit. Do you realize what this means? It means God's Word is true. God's Word is trustworthy. It means you can read God's Word and have complete confidence in what it says. But Peter also believed that God's Word spoke with relevance to their particular situation in history. And we must believe the same thing today as we face the challenges of a changing world. Now, that goes counterculture. That is swimming upstream in our day and age. But folks, we must have a conviction, a deep-hearted conviction that God's Word is true and trustworthy and relevant. And we must remain committed to this book as our absolute authority in our lives and in our church. Because once we begin to compromise on that, we will begin to compromise on many, many things. So here's, here's our challenge. Here's our challenge. Our challenge then, as Christ followers, is to saturate our minds with God's Word and to submit our lives to what it says. Oh, that we may have the conviction and commitment of Peter. You see, it's one thing to believe God's Word. It's another thing to read it and to obey it no matter what. If we want to see God's power at work in us, we've got to saturate ourselves in the Word and submit ourselves to what it says. Oh, may we have the conviction and commitment of Peter here to stand up in our families, to stand up at work, to stand up with our friends, to stand up even in with ourselves and here in our church and say, whatever the Bible says, that we will do no matter what. Do you have that kind of conviction? Do you have that kind of commitment to the authority of God as your absolute authority, regardless what our culture is screaming to us through Facebook and the media and all the news outlets and the pressure from, from whatever? If we would dare to live with such conviction and commitment, listen, the knees of Satan would buckle and we would turn the world upside down as an unstoppable force for God. As we close out our time together, let me just get you to focus on three questions for application that are there at the bottom of your notes. Questions for you to evaluate personally. Am I committed to the absolute authority of God's Word. And before you say yes, we need to ask ourselves, well, how do we know we are? What evidence can we point to in our life that we are committed to the absolute authority of God's Word? Which leads us to these two other questions. We know we're committed when we're willing to saturate our minds with God's Word. To saturate it on a regular basis to read it daily, and if not daily, at least on a consistent basis, weekly. And then are we willing to submit 
to God's word, to do what it says regardless. That's how we know that we're committed to the absolute authority of God's word. Father, we thank you for these portraits of the early church, how they were small, frail, and weak, and yet so full of faith and so full of resolve and so full of determination to follow you and continue the mission that Jesus began. Father, that you would make us such a people. May we be a people committed to the absolute authority of your word, and may you unleash your power upon us for the sake of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us to look at our own lives in relation. Help us to even take the life of Judas in the example and to evaluate and examine our own relationship with you. And, Lord, I pray that if we have not yet submitted our lives to you for salvation, that we would run to you and repent of our sins, and receive your forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let me suggest one way that you can take home this message and apply it. And that is to, obviously, just read God's Word. You know, one of the things of application is we need to saturate our minds with the Word of God. And so, perhaps you're wondering... I mean, I don't know where to read. I don't know what to read. Let me give you a suggestion on what to read and where to start. This week, you read Acts chapter 1, which we've been in for the last four weeks, and also begin reading Acts chapter 2. We're going to spend the next three Sundays in Acts chapter 2. And so just read Acts 1, Acts 2. And if you're like, wow, this is so awesome, man, I just want to go further, then read Acts chapter 3. If you need other tools to help you in saturating your life with the Word of God. There's reading plans on the back table, or even come and talk to myself or Pastor Chris. And that's one way to know. And then, here's the kicker, though. What you read, you got to be willing to obey, willing to submit your life to. And uh, let me encourage you also, uh, we have 12 more days in our 40 days of prayer. And, uh, and so take this prayer guide and use it in praying for our church. And uh, 40 days of prayer, 12 more, and, uh, and so let me encourage you to do that. All right, we're going to receive our morning offering here, and then we'll be dismissed.